0: Hi everyone, my name is Tom Burkhead. I'm one of the second year uh, fellows in infectious diseases at University of South Florida. Today, I'll be talking a little bit about a brief history of vaccination. Today, the objective is is really just to summarize a few of the uh, significant events in in vaccine history and the scientific advancements that have really shaped our our understanding and, and use of vaccines today. Today's not necessarily an exhaustive review of, of vaccinology, the current guidelines on adult immunization, or some of the social issues around, around vaccination, um, although there are some other good talks in, um, in the podcast series about vaccine hesitancy, adult immunization, uh, and several of these other topics uh, that I encourage you to look at as well. And as a disclosure, I have uh, no financial disclosures. So, so, moving ahead, uh, some of the the earliest beginnings of a vaccination were with a process that we refer to today as variolation, which was done uh, we, we know in the mid 1500s and, and possibly much earlier than that as well. Um, but ancient Chinese were, were uh, some of the first to to, um, to do this to do this process, and what it involves is taking uh, components of infectious material um, from someone who had the disease, who had smallpox disease, and introducing it into um, a healthy host. Um, it, typically, this would be scabs that would be inoculated into the skin or the nose that would cause a, a milder disease, um, but that would then induce immunity um, against vaccination or against, excuse me, against the disease if someone was exposed um to the disease later on there was the silk road of, of trade routes that eventually led to this, to the spread of this practice from china and the far east um, um, to other parts of the world too um, including including europe and one of the notable people around this time was uh, a woman named larry uh, lady mary montague she was a very prominent member of British society. She was a very outspoken um, writer and, and social critic. Um, her brother actually died from smallpox, um, and as a child, she was also afflicted with the disease. Um, she was known to, to be very beautiful, um, but you see with the with the disease she had, uh, she was fairly disfigured from it. Um, also, left without eyelashes. Her husband actually served as an ambassador coming England to the Ottoman Empire, um, leading her to Constantinople in what we refer to today as Istanbul, Turkey. And while she was traveling there, she noticed that the people there had this this astonishingly clear skin um, because they were not afflicted with um, smallpox as heavily. And and she began to realize that this was tied to their their practices of variolation. Um, And this. Uh, you know, prompted her to become a big advocate of it. She actually had it performed publicly on her daughter after she um, returned to England. Um, one of the famous experiments at this time was called the Newgate Prison Experiment um, of 1721, where six prisoners uh, were, were offered freedom if they agreed to, to trial variolation, uh, were later exposed to smallpox and, and survived. Um, all six went through with that experiment and were freed, which, which really started to draw uh, broader attention to the practice. Um, uh, and then variolation, it eventually became much broader practice throughout England. Um, of course, although for, for its advantages, it had uh, many skeptics and um, definitely some, uh, some costs associated with it as well. There was um, just, of course, the, the preparatory and recovery periods involved. The costs of doing the process itself and the time involved. Uh, um, The mortality: two to three percent of those variolated actually died, in in comparison with um, twenty to thirty percent who actually died after contracting smallpox. Um, So, of course, it's still a tenfold decrease, um, but there was a very real risk of of having no serious disease with variolation too. Uh, This also happened to a son of King George III at the time. Um, It was also transmissible to others during that recovery period. Um, Some accused physicians of advocating for it for for profit as well. In the New World, um, smallpox epidemics took its toll there as well, in in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia in the 1700s. Ben Franklin actually became uh, a big advocate of variolation during an outbreak in the 1750s when he found a very favorable mortality benefit. And George Washington actually mandated that inoculation occur against smallpox for the Continental Army recruits in what many consider the, uh, the first mass immunization of the military power or the first uh, vaccine mandate. The name many of us have heard before uh, is Edward Jenner, who tested the hypothesis that infection from cowpox could protect a person from smallpox. He had noticed that the milkmaids who contracted cowpox um, after working with, with cows seemed to have this protective benefit against uh, smallpox when they were exposed later. And what he did, he actually um, inoculated an eight-year-old boy, James Phipps, um, who was the son of a of gardener, uh, with cowpox from the hands of the milkmaid. James had a local reaction, but he fully recovered and was subsequently protected against, against smallpox. Um, you know, this, this today is one of the most famous um, experiments in you know vaccine history. Um, the main reason being it was the first scientific study you know, of an attenuated form of an infectious agent to protect against the human pathogen. One um, interesting uh, point to note, uh, BACA is Latin for cow, uh, providing the stem in, in vaccinia, and later vaccine, uh, which um, wasn't a term that came to be used for, for many years after that. Uh, what What is interesting to, to consider at this time is as uh, it, notable as that event was, the, the scientific... The, Reason for it was not well understood um, at all, and, and wouldn't be for for many years. Um, you know, many diseases at the time were thought to be due to, to physical and chemical transformations of tissues, with microbes being uh, incidental findings. Um, some thought disease was due to miasma or bad air. Spontaneous generation was a prevailing theory on um, on the generation of new life at that time from from decaying matter. Um, then the mid to late 1800s were a time when there was a, a tremendous growth of new, new knowledge and understanding that was really paved by um, new advances in microscopy and microbiology um, and several notable individuals, including Pasteur, Cook, Virchow, uh, and, and several others we'll talk about. One of the interesting stories from this time um, is from uh, Vienna, Austria. The physician, Dr. Simmel Weiss, was a faculty member um, in the obstetrics unit at, um, at this hospital. And he had noticed that childbed fever, as they referred to it at the time, which we now know is streptococcal disease, um, it, it, it caused the death of about one out of every 10 mothers um, at the time, so a very you know significant cause of mortality. He had noticed that there was an association between the odor from the women Dying, and that from the corpses uh, studied by the medical students and faculty who were, of course, going back and forth, um, you know, between the two, at a time when when you know hand washing and sanitation wasn't a common practice. And he hypothesized that there was a, a putrid matter, as, as he called it, that was actually transferred on the hands of the physicians and students, and, and was um, possibly a cause of this condition. Um, 1847, he he used a chlorinated lime solution, um, and had the um, you know the students and faculty use this in between patients. And that that year, there was actually a, a fourfold decrease in uh, in mortality. Uh, d- despite that, um, his his contributions really weren't understood for for many years later. Uh, but some other important people are uh, Layman Hook, who's who we know of for his work with microscopy. There was uh, John Snow, who many consider to have done the first uh, epidemiological study with cholera outbreaks in the 1840s and 50s in, in London. He actually traced many of these cases back to um, uh, to the water source um, as, as being the, the vector for, for disease. There's an iconic photo of a, of a water pump in, um, in London that's um, a, a tribute for him in his studies at the time. Louis Pasteur was the founder of germ theory. Um, he debunked spontaneous generation, um, developed the process of pasteurization, and was um, integral to the some of the first widely used vaccines in, in animals and humans. Virchow uh, was the founder of cellular pathology and cell theory, the idea that um uh, organisms are, are um, the structural unit of organisms is is cells um, of course Robert cook um, his postulates are that are used as criteria to establish whether a particular microbe is the cause of, of disease um, so a little more on Pasteur um, he's, he's arguably one of the the most influential people in in the history of vaccination um, he um, after variolation, he pioneered a lot of efforts to, to develop some other vaccines. He, he actually coined the word vaccination uh, as a tribute um, to Jenner um, in the late 1800s. Some of his first work was with chicken cholera, uh, which was caused by Pastorella Um He exposed some chickens to one-month-old cultures of the organism. And when the same chickens were exposed to a fully virulent strain, they survived the challenge. This is uh, discovered with, excuse me, this is credited with saving much of the the chicken industry um, in Europe at the time. Some of his efforts progressed into um, work with with anthrax vaccination. Um, Historically, anthrax in in humans has always depended on control of the disease in livestock um, as well. And some early observations found that the cows inoculated with plus from other cows demonstrated a, a protective effect and um, very similar to variolation. Um, and this is kind of what's prompted interest in um, doing similar practice uh, for vaccination in animals and humans. Um, there's a veterinarian who um, subjected sheep's blood to uh, uh, elevated temperatures 55 degrees C for 10 minutes uh, prior to challenging healthy sheep. Um, Uh, with an attenuated version of the the pathogen uh, much as Pasteur had done with chicken cholera. Um, Pasteur adopted this approach uh, and found that growth at slightly lower temperature um, could happen without spore formation. And then it's that it could show progressively less virulence the longer it was incubated. So at eight days it was less virulent for rabbits and sheep, over six weeks period, it, it eventually failed to even kill mice and guinea pigs. Um, another famous experiment um, happened in a little town just southeast of Paris, at the farm of a veterinarian who was actually set out to to disprove Pasteur's germ theory. Um, important context to know at this time: Pasteur was, um, of course, trained as a as a laboratory chemist um and was not formally medically trained uh and I'll, that really prompted a lot of mistrust among the medical community um as far as some of his observations and suggestions they called him a conceited laboratory chemist unversed in medical thinking um but this is really what so this is important context to know when when this experiment happened in 1881 um at the farm of this veteran actually vaccinated uh, 24 sheep, a goat, and six cows uh, with the two-dose series um, of anthrax, Um, with, of course, attenuated versions um, of the pathogen. Uh, And then he also used a similar number of controls. He found that when challenged with anthrax, almost all the animals without the vaccine died, um, whereas those who had the vaccine survived. Um, And this actually created a a huge amount of, of media press and. And attention at the time, um, and, and really uh, you know, publicized a lot of his his observations and his uh, in his work. Um, and some other some some of Pasteur's important work was also with the rabies vaccination. Rabies at the time uh, was invariably fatal, but, but very poorly understood beyond its transmission through infected saliva. Pasteur showed that transmission between uh, rabbits um, could also occur through inoculation of the nervous system tissues. Um, and this this really kind of demonstrated that the causal agent was not only found in saliva and he also realized that this shortened the incubation period um, He also found that if he did the same um, but allowed the, the virus to air dry then it would become progressively less virulent um, and then after 15 days, it was actually no longer, no longer virulent um, at all. So in an experiment that is um, uh, reminiscent of Jenner's, um, Jenner's variolation, uh, variolation, I'm sorry, his uh, cowpox experiment uh, was done with rabies vaccination. There was a nine-year-old boy, Joseph Meister, who experienced a severe bite from a rabid dog And Pastor, along with the pediatrician, um, administered a vaccination series to the boy. They started 60 hours uh, after the bites. He was inoculated over the the abdomen with a a 15-day-old desiccated spinal cord specimen from an infected rabbit. And then he progressed to do 12 total inoculations over the next 10 days, each with a a more virulent virus. Um, And and Joseph Meister, survived um, despite his bites. And this was the first um, successful evidence of therapeutic administration of a vaccine. We refer to that today more so as this post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, but this was the first time that was really shown um, to work. And uh, Joseph Meister actually grew up in, uh, to be a security guard at the, uh, um, the Pasteur Institute. Uh, later in life. Yeah. So uh, another important thing to know at this time was um, the development of human immunology as a distinct discipline which developed in the late 19th century um, of course with theories of cell mediated and immoral immune uh, immunity. In 1884 there was a Ukrainian scientist um, named Metchnikov to observe phagocytosis in starfish, and I hypothesized that the same process would occur in higher species as well. Uh, he eventually received the 1908 Nobel Prize for that. There were a couple of German physicians, notably Bering, um, recognized that serum factors prevented lethality from bacterial toxins, notably with tetanus and, and diphtheria. These antitoxins, they, they were later discovered to be antibodies um, and that they could be passively shared from one person to the next. which um, has to deal more with um, passive immunity that I'll, I'll talk more about in a bit as well. Of course, thinking about the immune system, we have our innate and adaptive immunity, innate immunity being the, the nonspecific mechanisms by which the body protects itself from, from pathogens, the skin and stomach acid uh, being important barriers. We also have macrophages, natural killer cells uh, form phagocytosis, along with the complement system. The adaptive immunity is, is um, what's more so associated with the immune response to, to vaccination and, and protect, protection uh, through vaccination. Developed, of course, later in, in evolution to provide immunologic memory, both the humoral and cell-mediated mechanisms. And, of course, the immune system is a uh, talk in and of its own. Another development at this time, uh, up to this point, most vaccines uh, were derived from a naturally occurring pathogen or an attenuated version, such as with vaccinia, anthrax, rabies. The late 19th century introduced the idea of inactivation of of bacterial pathogens um, in in human vaccination. Um, There was in 1886. um, Theobald Smith and his chief, Daniel Selman, developed the first successful heat-killed vaccine against the agent of hog cholera. Um, Inactivation was subsequently applied to human vaccines for typhoid, plague, and cholera, each of which uh, have an interesting story. Um, Cholera um, was notable as one of the first attempts to induce immunity in humans to a bacterial pathogen. Waldemar Hefkheim was a Ukrainian-born scientist uh, who um, whose efforts with uh, vaccine against cholera uh, became very famous uh, um, primarily related to his trials in um, india with the vaccine these are oddly considered to be some of the first human vaccine trials um, with cholera in the late late 1800s he vaccinated over 40,000 um, individuals against cholera with uh, uh, you know with very successful results and um, and shortly thereafter, um, uh, developments toward a heat-killed, uh, uh, heat-inactivated, excuse me, whole cell cholera vaccine, it was easier to prepare. Um, also showed a lot of uh, promise and success, over 80% effective um, in, in studies at the time. And uh, modifications of the killed cholera vaccine uh, formed the foundation for that vaccine throughout much of the 1900s. Um, there A variety of them were given in the middle of the century, including to allied troops who were stationed in regions where cholera was was endemic, uh, which is attributed to greatly decreasing the incidence of of disease among the troops. Um, Today, we use a live uh, oral vaccine for cholera in the United States um, for travelers in areas where there is active transmission. Uh, Killed varieties are, are also in widespread use outside the US. Typhoid vaccination, um, uh, live vaccination with typhoid was originally attempted in the late 1800s as well. Uh, Wilhelm Kohl later used, he killed typhoid, typhoid vaccine um, in animal models prior to be to used in humans. Um, in the early 1800s, um, efforts to immunize troops with a neural form by uh, James Carroll, who previously studied yellow fever, um, uh, kind of paved the way for, for its use in subsequent years. Uh, World War One um, use of a, a typhoid vaccination was thought to greatly in, uh, reduce the incidence of disease as compared with uh, the Spanish-American War uh, a few years before. Uh, today, we still use uh, both um, live and, and inactivated uh, uh, typhoid vaccinations. There's a live oral vaccine as well as uh, it's a parental vaccination, um, and none are completely effective, but they're, all, they're still highly efficacious, safe, and, and recommended for, for travelers um, to areas with high risk of exposure. I uh, touched, touched briefly on the idea of passive immunization. And just returning to this idea, because uh, we have active and passive Immunization. A- active immunization is more so what we associate with uh, vaccin- vaccination, wherein the body uh, develops an immunologic memory to um, a weakened form of a pathogen. Passive immunization um, is, is distinguished in that the protection is through an exogenously produced antibody. Um, we're, we're familiar with this in terms of um, a transplacental transfer of antibodies. From a mother to a fetus that, protect, that provide protection for the first three to six months of life, um, and this and this is really what uh, formed the basis for for using the protective effects of antitoxins for um, tetanus and, and diphtheria as well. Um, what they refer to as, as serum therapy. Um, Baring also did some some key work in this area. He uh, discovered that serum from animals who had received sublethal doses of both tetanus and diphtheria could be injected into other animals and create a protective effect. This was initially called passive transfer, um, eventually leading to serum therapy. And what's, what's notable about this, this led to the inaugural uh, Nobel Prize in 1901. Uh, that was for the discovery of, of serum therapy. Large scale production of this then uh, shortly uh, followed shortly thereafter, and the uh, the efforts to to standardize that um, standardize these methods led to some of the first standard reference preparations um, that humans began to began to use. Um, and one one of the early incidents associated um, with the antitoxin solution is in 1901. Several children, um, died in St. Louis. Um, when one of the solutions was contaminated with tetanus spores. This really prompted some of the the first regulation, including the Biologics Control Act, which was the first law um, implementing federal regulations of biological products, uh, including vaccines in the US. Shortly thereafter, we had the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906, and these developments eventually led to the uh, Food and Drug Administration that we know of today. And I'll circle back on that a little bit in a minute. Um, moving along in history, um, in addition to serum therapy, the, the efforts towards vaccination for diphtheria and tetanus uh, occurred largely in parallel too. Um, the first tetanus toxoid vaccine was licensed in 1926 and subsequently diphtheria in 1933. Uh, you know, variations are still used, um, of course, today we know of the Tdap, um, DT, uh, DTaP vaccinations. Uh, what was really notable about these vaccines is that um, it was discovered that by conjugating these um, toxoids with an aluminum salt uh, adjuvant, you could greatly improve the immune response um, by conjugating that um that adjuvant uh, you know to the protein itself um, studies demonstrated that you had a far stronger immune response um, in doing so. Tetanus and the theory these are among the first vaccines to, to do this. Um, just looking at the um, you know, mortality and um, incidence of tetanus in the US uh, as we all know it, it declined greatly with early 20th century seeing a dramatic decline. Um, and of course, the widespread immunization of troops in World War II led to significant reductions in, in death due to tetanus, as compared with, with World War One. Uh, for a little modern-day context um, of adjuvants, we still they're, they're uh, you know a very critical component of many of the vaccines we use today, including meningococcus, uh, pneumococcus, influenza. Um, of course, the menace, we. I talked about tetanus and diphtheria HIV and hepatitis um, a and b vaccines and um, all the way up including some uh, more experimental vaccines today um, these can cause some more localized reactions because of that stronger immune response with some localized pain uh, swelling and redness at the site of injection um, for that reason uh, of course oh, One of the most most widespread uh, vaccinations today, influenza, it had its beginnings in the early 1940s. Uh, Thomas Francis, Jonas Salk, who we know of for for his work with polio, and I'll talk about that shortly. They were lead researchers at the University of Michigan to develop the first inactivated flu vaccine with the US Army. Um, Well, this was inspired by the 1918 pandemic. And the loss of troops during World War One, They utilized uh, fertilized chicken eggs uh, in a manner that's that still used to produce um, many of our flu vaccines today. In um, 1945, the first inactivated influenza vaccine was licensed. And what was interesting, just it, it did not take much time at all to realize that um, the antigenic changes of the influenza virus year over year would, would be important to, uh, for or would lead to us you know modifying that the vaccination on a yearly basis um, and based on the antigenic changes from from year to year um, one of the most uh, possibly uh, well-known stories and I think in vaccination I in mean, history is is with polio um, polio really a a lot of fear into, into the public uh, it presented without warning in many cases and of course there was no care uh, CNS involvement was uh, uh, was not a pervasive um, adverse effect of, of all cases but um, of course it did affect many and this is one of the interesting times when when better hygiene actually um, uh, it led to fewer exposures as in- since when infection is milder, the maternal antibodies offered some protection. Um, so this is actually a time when we had increased vulnerability um, later in life, uh, because uh, you know these hygiene practices actually led to less exposure early in life uh, when the disease was milder. FDR, of course, popularized uh, polio after he contracted the, the disease. Um, in the 1920s and his efforts led to the march of dimes which is one of the most pivotal funding source uh pivotal funding sources for vaccine research in the era um, this is when the concept of the poster child the telethons celebrity fundraising that's really when a lot of this was was first born looking at um, uh, just a quick timeline of, of the history of polio vaccination it's really first isolated and early 1900s, um, Albert Sabin um, showed that polio virus could be cultured in, in nervous tissue. Uh, of course, I'll talk more about him and his work with, um, uh, with the live vaccine. In the 30s, um, a couple of vaccine trials um, were actually unsuccessful, and that's possibly a lesser known fact that there were some unsuccessful trials prior to um, the more famous trials with uh, Sabin and Salk. There were some notable advances in the in the 40s that um, enabled polio virus to be um, to be cultured much more effectively, and those were really critical developments for the future studies in, in polio vaccination. Um, that also the group of scientists um, uh, w- led to their winning of the 1954 Nobel Prize. Sabin and Salk uh, quickly became uh, quick rivals in, in uh, the vaccine race and they were each awarded um, uh, over a hundred thousand dollars for funding in, in 1950 to develop this 1952 was a record year for polio uh, which which was really prompting you know public support and uh, attention to, to this vaccine race um, and it was in 1955 that the results of the Salks vaccine trial were were actually announced a little more about about Falk uh, uh, and Sabin. So, Falk, as I mentioned, he trained under epidemiologist Thomas Francis uh, first with, with the influenza vaccine, and his training there was really uh, a strong influence on him and his focus on the killed vaccine, the killed virus approach. Um, and he did this. He pursued this really at the criticism of many who felt like a, a live vaccine was going to be the the more effective approach. Um, but, but nonetheless, he, he was very dedicated to the um, to the killed virus approach. And he actually, um, early 1950s, he injected himself, his wife, and their three sons with the vaccine. Um, of course, our you know sequence of trials and ethics regarding trials have all, have all changed quite a bit since this time. But it was standard practice for and a lot of history for scientists to self inject themselves and family, um, in their early studies. In in 1954, um, he went on to do a randomized double-blind trial um, of over 1.3 million with with excellent efficacy. Um, And it was in April of 1955 that his his results were announced at a uh, press conference to to much acclaim. Um, One of the uh, the public confidence was uh, the public opinion was, of course, uh, you, know, in, uh, you know, wildly favorable um, towards vaccination when this was announced. Uh, well, one of the events that happened shortly thereafter there was uh, um, a first grader in Idaho who contracted polio after an injection of the vaccine. Um, and later died three days later. There were several other cases that arose around the country, and what had happened was um, in anticipation of this announcement several companies had actually already started to stockpile the the vaccine um, and one of those companies was having some difficulty in, in producing a, a fully inactivated virus the uh, the lots were were discarded um, that they had identified but under the regulations there was no obligation to report a lot of that uh, a lot of those findings to the public um, and it turned out that some of the that um, some of that uh, lot had actually gotten out into the public, um, and so there, there was a you know period of short period of panic there while the investigations ensued. But um, once it was identified um, what the source was, um, the public support was quickly uh, you know regained after it became clear what, what had happened. But over 200 cases were were attributed to that um, to that accident early on. Another, the other critical figure um, was uh, Albert Sabin, who was equally a proponent of the live vaccine approach. His thinking was that this would be a much more durable response, that it would produce higher antibody levels. It was thought to be more consistent with the, the, the pathophysiologic um, mechanisms of infection, too, through the GI tract. Um, and he claimed that Anything else was a dangerous use of time and money. Um, at this time, there were really three strains of, of polio that had been identified in the public. Therefore, developing a live vaccine against all three was a much more time-intensive process um, to do that, um, which is one of the reasons his vaccine came into use at a, at a much later time. He, um, he did much of his trials in the Soviet Union. Actually, where double blinded model was not as widely used, in favor of what they called humanitarian testing, which was essentially you know a widespread administration of this vaccine. There was no placebos or control groups um, at the time. But despite that, his his trials were were wildly successful. He's largely credited with eliminating polio in, in the Soviet Union. Um, um, as vaccination evolved, of course, Salk's vaccine came into widespread use first as it, it was announced first. Um, but as the vaccine, it, it did have a number of advantages. There was oral administration as opposed to, um, as opposed to injection. There's no need for boosters. Um, I mentioned the, the pathophys, more similar to natural infection and a faster immune response. The, uh, and this is really what um, led to its use, um, I think more from a public health perspective and more resource poor conditions, it was much easier to administer an oral vaccine in those settings too. Of course, the, the primary drawback, there was a very uh, extremely rare, but the very real possibility of, of infection from the, uh, from the live vaccination. Um, it, it was only about one in a million, but because of that reason, the World Health Organization urged polio-free nations to phase out the uh, oral vaccine um, due to the possibility of introducing new infections in and in polio-free nations, because there, there's actually the possibility of reintroducing the uh, the disease for that reason. Um, so, moving ahead a bit in history, we have a. Uh, uh, measles, mumps, and, and rubella vaccination. Measles was one of the, of course, the most contagious diseases um, in human beings. Uh, transmission of up to 90% of close contacts. Um, at, at the time period, it was considered ubiquitous and, and affected nearly every person by adolescence. We would have major outbreaks every two to three years, peak incidents in the late winter and spring. Um, development of a vaccine that began in, in the 1950s with an outbreak in a Boston school where they uh, obtained some of the, the specimens that were actually used in um, in culture uh, in, uh, culture through human kidney cells um, this eventually led to the an inactive um, virus that was later uh, uh, licensed in 1963 um, Several years later, there was the mumps vaccine in uh, 1968 and, and rubella in 1969. Um, then in 71, the U.S. government licensed um, Merck's trivalent vaccine against measles, mumps, and rubella um, as, a, as a live virus vaccination. What's critical about this period is, is the idea of combination vaccines. So the, um, you know, the, the ability to get a vaccination for multiple diseases in um, you know one uh, one injection um, became you know very popular just due to the need for reduced injections reduced shipping and storage costs overall higher vaccination rates uh, due to needing fewer injections um, as a side note more recently we have the MMRV uh, vaccination which adds varicella to that protection as of 2005. To so this point, um, um, most vaccines were, you know, relying on on these inactivated uh, uh, vaccines. But there's a, a new concept of polysaccharide vaccines, whereby the polysaccharide component um, could actually induce a immune response um, became more popular. Um, most people consider this area after an MMR to be golden age of vaccine development with. Um, uh, Renewed interest in, in vaccination against um, pneumococcus, in particular, um, interest in a, in a vaccine against streptococcal disease um, started earlier in the 1900s, uh, you know, due to the uh, association with otitis media, meningitis, respiratory infections uh, from streptococcus pneumoniae. But interest, of course, uh, waned with the advent of penicillin and antibiotics. Um, the, um, um, then it, of course, did become—the um, uh, interest arose more later on to, uh, to explore vaccine um, against strep pneumo. Um, as I mentioned, the prevailing theory was that proteins are severe, superior immunogens, although early work in the 1900s did show immunogenicity to uh, polysaccharides. Um, Robert Austrian was— a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and published data um, you know, showing the persistent mortality of the disease despite antibiotic therapy, which was a big part of uh, renewing interest in the vaccine. He dedicated much of his life to developing this vaccine. Some of his trials were in um, South Africa in gold mines, where the uh, the workers there would come for six to nine months at a time. Of course. Um, you know, these individuals were immunologically naive to that environment, and there would be very large outbreaks among groups when they were exposed. Um, his trials uh, using pneumococcal vaccination in that group showed over 80% reduction um, in the incidence of pneumococcal pneumonia, um, so some, some extremely successful uh, results. In 1977, the first pneumococcal vaccine was licensed. It was active against 14 strains. In um, second pneumococcal vaccine um, supplanted the original active against 23 strains, which we know as the pneumovax uh, 23, still in use today. Um, Of course, the 70s and 80s that eventually led to uh, use of purified bacterial uh, polysaccharide uh, components for vaccines against pneumococcus, meningococcus, and um, also H H flu type B. Um, See, as far as pneumococcal conjugate uh, vaccines that uh, that came about later, some some subsequent studies showed that conjugating that polysaccharide to carrier protein actually introduced a a stronger immune uh, immune response. Um, And then in 2000, the first pneumococcal conjugate vaccine was licensed in the in the U.S. as the Prevnar 7. 2010, we had the the 13-valent version, which is and still widely used, used today. Uh, some studies exploring some uh, vaccines against against even more strains um, that are ongoing. Um, an important development around this time was the idea of, of recombinant vaccines. Um, some initial trials with uh, the hepatitis B vaccine focused on the um, Australia antigen, they called it, or, which was the, later found to be the hepatitis B surface antigen. Um, and the hepatitis B um, the vaccination was really the first to use uh, this idea of recombinant uh, technology, wherein you could actually splice a piece of DNA into, um, into another cell and culture to actually produce an antigen at, at large scale. Um, and hepatitis B was one of the uh, you know, first vaccines to, um, to use this technology. Um, and that's been applied in hepatitis B vaccination since um, 1986. Another um, development around this time was the, the idea of vaccine as a tool to prevent cancer. Uh, hepatitis B was, was really more so the, the first one that would have a could have a benefit in in uh, reducing cancer, namely liver cancer. Although possibly uh, the human papilloma virus vaccination is what we more famously associate with that. Um, and it was noticed, uh, you know, even in the mid 1800s, that there were some um, you know demographic variations in, in uterine cancer. Um, there was an Italian uh, pathologist who noticed that. Uterine cancer was predominantly one of married women rather than single women and nuns, um, and that also tended to happen in, in younger women. It wasn't until the 70s that the new technology actually enabled us to, to understand uh, you know, why that was when um, you know, we realized that human papillomavirus um, was a common cause of both warts and, and cervical cancer. Um, specifically, types 16 and 18 were strongly associated with, with uh, anogenital and, and tonsillar cancers. Um, it was found that working with some of the structural proteins, uh, even low levels of protein expression could, could lead to the assembly of what they call virus-like particles that could induce protective immunity. Um, initially, it was much more difficult to find a, a component of Virus that would be um, that would induce you know, an immunologic memory, but um, the discovery of these VLPs that that could do so um, uh, kind of paved the way for the development of a, of a vaccine. Um, using those similar recombinant techniques that were used for the hepatitis B vaccination, um, we had a way to produce. Uh, uh, and the, these particles at in large scale. Um, eventually, this led to um, quadrivalent vaccine for types 6, 11, 16, and 18, which was known as Gardasil. A bivalent vaccine came out shortly thereafter. Although it's no longer widespread spread used due to having um, vaccinations that are active against more um, more strains of the virus. Currently, we um, only the nine-valent vaccine is is available in the U.S. Uh, active against a number of, of strains presented there, and there's a there's a uh, a wealth of data about you know the benefits and the uh, you know the, the positive impact of this vaccine on reducing um, reducing human disease. Um, and within four years, um, there was one study in particular that showed that the vaccine type prevalence of, of HPV decreased um, greater than fifty percent um, among. Uh, teenage females, despite only about a third um, in the study completing the full three-dose series, um, which which a lot of this is, that decline is attributed to, uh, you know, just the widespread um, uh, development of immunity, um, you know, that protects even those who who aren't vaccinated uh, from being exposed as well. Um, Another important technology is uh, adenovirus-based vaccines, which uh, are another form of, of recombinant technology. Adenoviruses, what they are, are non enveloped double-stranded DNA viruses that cause mild respiratory and GI tract infections. What drew our attention to, to the use of these vaccines or the use of these um, you know, viruses as, as a method for vaccination. They, they have a very well-characterized genome, they're easily manipulated, um, and they can be modified in the lab to be a, they call a replication um, defective virus. Uh, so unable to replicate once they're introduced into a host. Um, and That's made them very attractive for, for vaccines and cancer gene therapy as well. They have a broad tissue tropism that allows them to target a range of dividing and non-dividing cells they have very high thermal stability and are highly immunogenic um, as well. There, there have been human clinical trials for anovirus-based vaccines and for HIV, Ebola, influenza, and a number of others as well. Um, possibly, most famously, we associate these um, in, in current times with vaccination for SARS-CoV-2. Um, of course, three. Um, uh, well-known vaccines and widespread use um, for COVID-2 based on the antivirus uh, platform, um, AstraZeneca vaccine, of course, the Sputnik uh, vaccine developed in Russia, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, used widely in the U.S. Um, and, of course, with COVID-19 vaccination, we also uh, know of the mRNA vaccines. Um, mRNA uh, was really first described in, in the 1960s shortly after we discovered uh, DNA. Uh, the, the interest in using this as a, as a vector for uh, vaccines has is, is, is actually been around for, um, for a while now. Um, the first mRNA flu vaccine was tested in mice in the 1990s. Um, there's also one under exploration for, for rabies in, in 2013. Um, Some of the early challenges with this were um, just delivery. mRNA itself it quickly degrades in the body, Um, but this started to uh, we began to find solutions to this with with new developments in nanotechnology. One of them being lipid nanoparticles, which uh, can encapsulate the mRNA and provide it some protection until it gets uh, you know taken up by a cell. Um, And I've got a see a little overview of how that uh, the concept of how that works. Um, so, of course, they have the spike protein on the um, coronavirus that's, that's used our, as our antigenic component uh, for the vaccine. We actually use um, an mRNA sequence that codes for that spike protein. Um, production is scaled up and placed in that, uh, in that lipid coating. Uh, which is actually the, the basis for for the vaccine. Uh, once it's administered into the body, the cells uptake um, uptake the lipid nanoparticle, and then use the cell's machinery to actually produce that that protein, which the body um, uh, uh, then recognizes as as a foreign product and develops antibodies to it, leading to uh, uh, protection on reexposure. And of course, uh, we know of you know, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that that use this concept uh, are widely in the U.S. now. Um, it's uh, it's hard to understand how uh, the impact of um, vaccination on on human disease. Um, here's just a, a snapshot of some of the um, decreases in um, in cases um, as of 2017 and, and 2016, and, and you know the percent. Dec- decline Um, and of course with um, essentially eliminating smallpox and um, uh, diphtheria uh, you can see a number of other diseases there the decrease in incidence as well as um, the more relative but still very important decreases that that we have in in pneumococcus for example um, with the uh, uh, polysaccharide vaccines um, to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, vaccine safety and regulation. Um, of course, most of this occurs under, in, uh, you know, in the United States under the Food and Drug Administration, under the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, uh, which is what allows us to have uh, the safest and most effective uh, vaccine supply uh, in history. Um, I mentioned early in the talk about some of the um, early Events that led to Biologics Control Act, the Pure Food and Drug Act in the early um, early part of the century, and of course it's been a progression since that time. Um, In 1938, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act uh, required new drugs to be shown to be safe before marketing. In 1955, the Division of Biologics Control was was originally placed under the NIH. um, and was prompted after that the incident when several children contracted polio, um, which was believed to be an improperly inactivated batch. Um, Then, late in the 70s, that actually transferred from the NIH to the, uh, um, uh, to the FDA. Um, Some other important events in 1981, um, the FDA and Department of Health actually revised some of the regulations around uh, human subjects protections, um, uh, including based on the the, the Belmont Report, uh, uh, which focused on the Tuskegee syphilis studies, when uh, you know a large group of African American men were studied um, right, who had known syphilis but were not uh, uh, told that they had that they had syphilis, which led to a number of cases, including to um, congenital transmission. Um, it's it's uh, interesting to note some of the, uh, the pivotal experiments and events that we think of with in the history of vaccination, uh, with um, you know children and being the first subjects and and scientists testing on themselves and their family. Um, it's it's only been in more more recent decades that we really have um, um, the more robust human subjects protections that we that we think of today. Um, but this has led to more standardized uh, protections against uh, – uh, as far as institutional review boards and organizations to, to review research protocols and um, the development of, uh, of new vaccines. Today, uh, of course, we have preclinical studies that use animal models um, to demonstrate protection and relative safety before it's even considered in, in humans. Um, and then you have, you know, phase, uh, the different phases of trials, which – essentially scale up use um, uh, used to, to demonstrate um, you know both both safety and efficacy um, in a kind of in a stepwise manner Phase one when a limited number of doses are given to, to humans um, followed by phase two when you give to um, uh, similarly to a limited number but with attempts to optimize the vaccine schedules and demonstrate further safety and then with phase three being your larger trials, to demonstrate efficacy in large numbers, um, which tends to be what we hear about more commonly with, with vaccine trials before they're marketed. Uh, and then there's, of course, post-market surveillance, which is used to detect, uh, you know, the rare adverse events associated with vaccination and, and to monitor safety. In 1986, we have the uh, National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. Um, this is part of what, public um, health uh, care providers do share the uh, the vaccine information statement that comes with with, uh, all vaccines in the United States um, today. And that's also what introduced the the vaccine adverse event reporting system um, by which um, individuals can can report adverse events. Thinking about future directions, um, I think MRNA vaccines, uh, and of course we're using them in COVID-19, there's likely to be a um, much broader use for this technology and vaccination in the future. And I think we can uh, we'll look forward to that application being used um, in other ways in the future. There's an ongoing efforts to, to vaccinate against the big three, AIDS, malaria, and, um, and tuberculosis, and develop um, effective vaccines for, for all three. Uh, of course, we have um, the BCG vaccination for tuberculosis, but there's always um, there's a great deal of interest in developing um, um, more widespread use of, of vaccine technology for for that disease. For HIV too, we're, we're still trying to gain some understanding of um, parts of the virus that can, um, that can really provide immune protection um, uh, against against the virus. There's interest in a universal flu vaccine course, and then vaccines against some tropical diseases, uh, malaria, we we mentioned West Nile and dengue. Um, Vaccines for cancers is also a new, um, is in development. Um, Of course, use of vaccines we have now as an easier to administer forms and uh, forms that are easier to use in in low resource um, conditions as well. So I think we have at least we still have quite a bit to look forward to in the development of, of vaccines in the coming years. Here's a quick summary of uh, some of the references used today. And uh, just, just to wrap up, here's I just included a couple uh, interesting photos back from the polio vaccination uh, era. This is Salk on the cover of, of uh, Time Magazine. This is Elvis Presley uh, receiving one of the early vaccinations to kind of help help promote uh, uh, public awareness and and encourage uh, or widespread use of the vaccine uh, so thank you for your attention I hope, hope you enjoyed uh, hope you enjoyed the talk today